What is crackalackin' hard and nuts listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host Adam Promel this time. I am, however, super pleased and excited to be joined once again by good friend and colleague at Bleacher Report, Grant Hughes. Follow him on Twitter at GT underscore Hughes. This is the second installment of our most underrated slash underappreciated player on every NBA team series. We already did the Eastern Conference, so if you've not checked out that podcast, do so right now. What are you waiting for? And this is going to be the Western Conference podcast. Before we get started, just a quick reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us out a ton. If this is your first time checking us out, consider becoming a, a permanent listener. We have a lot of fun around here. We are pleasantly thorough and seriously unserious and modestly, and only modestly insufferable. I would call that a, a pretty big win for national NBA coverage. Follow us on our, all our socials. Um, those are in the podcast description. Join our Discord channel. Have a lot of fun and co- uh, good conversations in there. That's also in the podcast description. We're on YouTube as well, so you can check us out there. And finally, if you do, if you have already, excuse me, subscribed to this podcast, consider helping us out by recommending us to a friend or twenty, retweeting our promotions, um, anything to just spread the word that this podcast is, as we say around here, TAF thermonuclear as fuck in the best possible way. Let's get to the most underrated slash underappreciated player on every Western Conference team with Bleacher Report's Grant Hughes. Grant, welcome back to Hardwood Knox. Dual appearances in the same week, which is not unprecedented for you. It's unprecedented for any single guest who is not you. Uh, Adam doesn't even do like dual episodes a week normally. So just look at you. Like, look at this lift right here. Welcome back. I'm excited to get into more underrated players with you and to Alphabet so damn accurately. How are you doing, though? It's been, while there have been a few days bef- since the, the Eastern Conference Logistics exercise was published, we have not spoken in, like, almost 12 hours. So I'm just wondering how many life-changing things have happened to you since then. So long. It's been way too long. I, I you know, it just, I, I, I did, a, you know, uh, an Epsom salt bath and uh, did some real... Got in, got the Normatec uh, boots on, and really just had to recover because I wanted to just be in peak form for, for the second one because I care more about the Western Conference. So I'm really like the 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 East one. That was you know I I brought like my B minus game. So so I, I this one I'm going to get serious. So glad to be back uh, in in such a short turnaround, and and I'm ready this time. Uh, look, Kwai would be sitting out this this podcast. Oh yeah, I don't load manage, yeah. not at all. And what a ringing endorsement for the Eastern Conference podcast, by the way. B minus. I was a solid like C plus. So go listen to that podcast. Let's get off and running, though. We're doing every team's most underrated player, in case you didn't catch that gist. We're in the Western Conference. We'll go alphabetically. Grant, the Dallas Mavericks are yours. Who did you pick? And just Kristaps is no longer on the team. I just wanted to. Make- oh, okay. So I have to totally redo this section then because, you know, I like there are there are a couple choices. Um I would just shout out. Uh, I, hate, I hate to step on it if if this was going to be your guy, but I would shout out Max DeKleba. I feel like he's always kind of underrated um, as a as a good defender. Like I still go back to when like he was the guy that the Mavs put on Kawhi Leonard for long stretches of of some playoff games um, when they had other options. But for me, it, it's Dorian Finney Smith. I feel like that's probably not a surprise. Uh, he's another low usage guy, but for for this team in particular, he just if you have Luka Doncic, who has all these obvious strengths, but defensively, that's kind of where Luka is lacking. 
to have a guy that can guard one through four and specifically guard the types of players that Luca, his position should guard to spare him those, like those heavier, heavier lifts on D that, that really matters. And now, I mean, and, and this isn't just like, Oh, he can sort of guard one through four. Finney Smith can re is really good. It is a, is an effective defender against four positions. And he shoots 39% from three, basically every year, you know, for the last three. Um, so that's huge because, it's not an issue if you can't create your own shot, if you have one of the best shot creators that's like ever walked the earth on your team. So the fit is great. Um, super versatile. Uh, the volume, I, I did this for Fred Van Vliet uh, on, on the Eastern Conference side. Um, Finney Smith is, you know, around the top 10 in minutes played this year. So I always think we underrate just availability because if Finney Smith is not there, then Dallas's whole thing kind of, it gets a lot harder for them to be the type of team they want to be and to be as good of a defense as they've become if he's not available, but he just sort of always is. Um, his matchup difficulty, last thing, we've talked about this a lot for underrated guys because it's kind of something you don't consider that much. Um, it's 99.9. So the only guys higher than him in terms of the quality of player they have to guard are Lou Dort and Matisse Tybul. Um, but he's played 900 more minutes than Tybul and 600 more minutes than Dort. So the wow. volume, again, comes in for him. Um, so it's just hard to find a better piece for this particular team, but Finney Smith is someone that I think would make literally any team significantly better. So the the correct answer is Frank Nielakina, but I think that <laughs> Finney Smith is the 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 best second answer. And I you could throw Cleveland in there too. He looked like cooked. I don't know how many times I'm going to say cooked when we record this podcast, but he did not look great at the start of the season. He's looked better, and I would say him getting healthier, Luca getting in shape plus sort of the uptick in Reggie Bullock's performance, and then Dorian Finney-Smith, who is probably the single biggest reason why the Mavs have been good on defense. Like, those are the four biggest factors when I watch the Mavericks um, that I feel like that you can assign to their defensive success this season and outperforming expectations there. And I think the only thing I really have to add with Dorian Finney-Smith is his three-point shot. It's only been 13 postseason games for his career, but he's the type of player where you wonder what's going to happen to him against postseason defenses uh, if he face either more, uh, more like con like contests on his shots, or are they just going to leave him open because they don't actually trust that he's shooting forty point three percent from three in the postseason through those thirteen games. And so like this isn't a you know a Matisse Thybulle situation with him. His yeah. volume is higher than that. So or and it, or an outlier situation with Lou Dort where he goes off like once every few games from the the perimeter. So them getting him, getting him on the extension, I. I'm shocked that he didn't just go into free agency, but four years of $52 million. And I know that there's a cap on what extensions can be, yada, yada, yada. I really believe that had he played out the season, he's probably looking at like a four year, at least $60 million deal on the open, even in a, I guess the cash strapped market this summer, but everyone wants wings who are in their twenties uh, who can defend four positions capably. Yep. He's great. The nuggets, they were, I don't want to say they were hard, but I vacillated between three guys. I don't know if we should be picking rookies in this. Otherwise, I would pick Bowens Highland. But I think people are starting to see like, oh, this rookie class is so deep, and he's one of the huge reasons why Denver might have gotten another steal. He is a caps lock shooter, and he is going to annihilate defenses off the dribbles for year off the dribble for years to come. Um, he already has like a nice catch and shoot touch. I've been very impressed with some of the passes he's thrown. I think he's going to be like. In an A minus finisher when he's at his peak, just based off like the way that he angles his body and how he's able to maneuver through 
uh, traffic a lot of the time, but I didn't pick him, even though I just went on a Bones Island tangent. Uh, also, Busy Bones, just one of the best nicknames. In the- <laughs> I-, I was between Jeff Green and Zeke Naji. I settled on Zeke Naji, but shout out to Jeff Green, who's just settled into like this four or five role, kind of stretches the floor on medium volume, but gives you a lot of switchability and some like reliable IQ on defense, even if he has to go up against certain bigs at points. He's from where he was. Like when you go back and look at how it seems like he was overrated, then his career's on the line because he had the heart issue. Then he's sort of just all around the NBA. You would trade a first round pick for him only for him to do nothing. And there was normally Doc Rivers on the receiving ends of those first round pick trades. So, and then to see what he's been now, like transitioning into this really valuable front court role player, shout out to him. I think it's Zeke Naji though, just his ability to stroke it from three I, th- I think the biggest hole in his, and he has some like, I don't want to call it a floor game, but there's like some oomph to him when you get him going inside the arc and he can be sneaky on certain putbacks defensively. I think what's tough is he probably could stand and just be more physical and he's like sort of center sized, but sort of not. And the nuggets don't necessarily use him as they're big. If you put him on a different team though, I have no doubt that there are teams in the league that would start him at the five because he would be their best big man on the roster, or at least the best equipped to do that. And so to have somebody who's just that mobile on the offensive end, while also being able to, to hit those threes and and stretch the floor. I know Denver's bench was sort of a, a point of contention for a lot of this season. And I believe Najee has been banged up right now. Um, They've had so many injuries on the roster this year, but yeah, he's day to day with an ankle injury. He's just been really good for them. And I, again, there's the shooting at that position, but it's also just, the ability to be a four when you look like you might be a five and then just his movement away from the ball on offense, I think is, is highly underrated outside of Denver, obviously, because speaking with people there, I think it's clear that that team values him. For sure. I think that's a great pick. The only, the only other one I, I, well, there are a couple I consider, I think Aaron Gordon, every time we're looking up defensive versatility, he's always way up there. And I think that's a factor, but um, Monte Morris like a net negative on offense for the past, however many weeks it's been, <laughs> I probably would have been a little bit more. Perhaps, yeah. I always, uh, I, I was thinking about Aaron Gordon today as I was preparing for this, and he don't, do you get like, uh, like weird like post athletic ability Blake Griffin vibes from him, where he's kind of just like he he's almost like predetermining his moves on the ball, and it just feels like I don't know, feels very mechanical, which is weird because he's like a dunk contest winning caliber athlete, but. Um, I don't know that I've always thought of too, but no, we got, I just want to mention like remove that image from my brain. Next time I'm going to watch Aaron Gordon. I'm going to be thinking about this when he's on the ball. I hope that's not what he's become on offense. No, I really want to see that is one of the more recent, like bigger. What ifs, if Jamal Murray just never gets injured last season, Denver has a case as like the foremost title favorite. And I just feel like not having Porter or Murray has shoehorned, shoehorned him at points into this offensive role that he was never suited for. We knew it in Orlando and he wasn't supposed to play it in Denver, but it's kind of been thrust upon him in smaller doses, but it's still an issue. Yeah. He's a perfect fourth option, right? Like that's where it's like, he can do stuff on offense if you absolutely need him to. And it's against a defense that is not loaded to him. Then that, and, or you just, he does stuff in transition that all works. Um, But just before we go to the Warriors, Monty Morris, like, you know, he's starting this year just by necessity his minutes are up, his shots are up, but his efficiency is also up. So, and that's always such a tough thing to do. Um, it's minor stuff. He's only averaging 13 a game, but he never turns it over. He's not asked, well, 
partly because he's not asked to do a lot of point guard things because they have Jokic, but just a, just a quick nod to him. Still doing more um, of those this year than he has in years past. He's yes. also, true or false, Monte Morris has never missed a long mid-range shot. I'm going to say true. I've never seen it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so I got the Warriors next. Um, and they're a weird team to do this for because they've been so prominent for so long. And they've been on so – it's it's everybody sort of has a rough idea of who does what um, because they're on you know the national stage more often than just about anybody. Um, I, I went with Gary Payton the second, um, for a couple, th- a couple re- well, one reason defense, but a, c- a couple aspects of that. Um, I think just anecdotally, um, we'll get to the numbers in a second, but I think he's the most disruptive on ball defender in the league. And there are guys like Patrick Beverly that come to mind in that regard, even though I, I think Patrick Beverly overrated, um, because of all the fouling. Um, you know, Marcus Smart is another guy. I'm sure I'm forgetting several, but I think Peyton on the ball, it's just like a matter of if he's if he comes in the game, the over-under is like 45 seconds until he deflects a ball or like knocks it away from a dribbler. It just happens every time. It's like a joke. It, it, it's like a given. So so that's the anecdotal case. Obviously, he has the highest matchup difficulty on the team just because he, you know, if you have Jordan Poole and you have Steph Curry, neither of them is going to guard the other team's best offensive guard. It's always going to be Peyton. Um, there's some stats now because, like, just saying he creates havoc and has a hard job is one thing. But so he's Peyton is tied with Matisse Tybul for the league lead in deflections for 36, which is like Tybul is like an all timer ball deflector already. Like, he's one of the best. He's just like everywhere all the time. His instincts are nuts. And Peyton is as good as him per minute in, in getting deflections. So that that's kind of wild. Um, that's among guys that have played 40 games. Offensively, it's it's tough with Peyton. Like that's where maybe if you're saying he's underrated, you sort of have to look away. But he's a passable three-point shooter. He's left open all the time for a reason, but he's around the league average. I think he's at like 36% last I saw. Um, those are all open corner threes, whatever. He's a super athlete. He He's a really good cutter from the corner. He gets a lot of duck-ins and dunks because his defender is always just like not looking at him. But still, you got to be opportunistic. Um, and advanced stats-wise, Raptor has him as the Warriors' third-best player. Uh, estimated plus-minus has him as the second-best player. Not saying that's, I mean, you know. That's what you're take saying. That for what, take that for, no take that for what it's worth. <laughs> but, but like, that's a good argument for him being underrated because nobody would even consider him as like, in the top five or six on the team. Um, so, uh, I, I think, I think he kind of, fit, and he's also a guy that was basically out of the league, you know, and, and was in danger of being out of the league forever until landing in just the right spot that could, you know, make use of the stuff he's good at and hide the things that he's not. He is like Saran wrap on defense because it's just like, you can't get that stuff unstuck to you. If it's like, that's so hard to maneuver around. So he is, I think he is the right choice. The only other name I would consider here. And also sometimes I'll watch Gary Payton, uh, the second on offense, and I'll think, what if Russell Westbrook played that role on offense for the Lakers? Maybe they don't have the spacing to make it happen, but just his willingness to cut, we've seen him used in like screens. Uh, I know people have said, like, what if Russell Westbrook played the Bruce Brown role? But it's almost like, what if he just played the Gary Payton second role? But that would, I guess, require also hustling on defense, which uh, is not something he does consistently. So I, I think the only other name here you could, or actually, I'll make two cases. One is Juan Toscano Anderson. It would yeah. be very nice if he could hit a free throw or a wide open shot this season, but he's just a smart player. Keeps the ball moving on offense, knows how to not get in anyone else's way when he doesn't have the ball. And he gives you versatility on the defensive end. 
I am a sucker for JTA and I would love to see him get more consistent minutes with the dubs. Like it feels like a lot of his playing time is sort of tethered to either how Steve Kerr's feeling that day or how many people are injured, but he has been, uh, it's been a rough patch for him offensively. I think you can make the case and I'm not trying to galaxy brain this shit here. I promise. I think you can make the case that Steph is still underrated because I, and maybe this is recency bias, but I did an MVP ladder at Bleacher Report and people were mad that I had him fourth because he went through a slump or the Warriors were 500 or whatever the record was without Draymond Green, or he only had what was eight points against the Bucks. And I use this example. I don't know why I talked about it on the Easter. Oh, because we were talking about Drew Holiday. But I use this example. If you get a team like the Bucks to say that Drew Holiday's basically only job is going to be to face guard you and pay attention to nothing else that is happening. No one else commands that type of attention in the league. And he changes just the geometry of an offense by stepping on the floor, not by having the ball, not by moving, just his existence. He could be standing in the corner and that changes everything. So I'm not here to say that he's actually underrated. He's a He's an MVP. So I, I get it. I, I totally, he's the only unanimous MVP in NBA history, but I feel like there's still a lack of appreciation for what he does or a lack of nuance for his value because it's not forget about the, like, yeah. Okay. They struggled without Draymond. Let's go see how the Warriors look now that they're not going to have Steph Curry for at least a few weeks here. Um, they're probably going to be much worse. And that's just, I, it still blows my mind after all these years. And some of the arguments I think are designed to make people angry. Uh, where they say, you know, uh, he doesn't have a finals MVP. Like, and he had Kevin Durant. And it's like, okay, but not it, so stuff like that, I can throw out the window. But the fact that we can't look and, or some people can't look at the, just the MVP race, I'm not saying he should win. And maybe there was a case for him earlier on in the season. But to think that putting him in the top five this season, when his team is still really good overall, and he remains the primary reason why. That still just blows my mind. So he's he's not my pick. I would go with Gary Payton second or JTA. But he just like he sort of had a case for the most improved player when he was the unanimous MVP. It feels like that type of a situation here to me. I think I think the way I'd put it is is he is the greatest scorer ever who impacts the game if in in a in the most significant way of anyone on the floor if he's like over twenty. Like it doesn't. It, then they're just I just to, just to use an example like you know. A great, great scorers that are that are good in other ways, like Demar Derozan, like best isolation scorer around right now, like that type of thing. If he's not scoring, it's not like it frees up stuff for other guys. Like just Curry's presence and the way that he moves and the way that he's willing to do stuff off the ball. Um, it's it just it makes it po- so. Yeah, to, to your point, the the Bucks tried this Drew Holiday, you know, face guard thing, and. Curry did basically nothing except run around and get off the ball and, and, and just accept it. And the Warriors beat the defending champs by like 20. They were, they would, they boat raced them early. Like it was just over. And I don't know how it's like, I don't know who else one gets that kind of treatment. Like you said, and two would have that be like kind of the predictable result because yeah, you're face guarding him, but all four other guys still are freaking out the second he has like a sliver of space. And there's just, there's just there's just never been anyone whose best skill scoring can be bottled up and it still doesn't matter for how or actually sometimes it has a positive effect on how well his team scores when he does it's it's a wild thing yeah that, I, I take your point um it's it's hard it's hard to encapsulate how great he is you know without 
without sort of feeling like ridiculous because he has won two MVPs. But anyway, yeah, I like that. What, is there like a similar case to be made for Draymond? So like, I, well, sure. Because I think there are people that look at like, what is the average eight, seven and seven. And it's like, well, how good is this guy? Right. That's just such a, you know, we should, I hope nobody is listening to this that thinks that I hope, I hope we have like a little, uh, uh, I don't know, higher basketball IQ audience than that. Um, but defensively, like, yeah, he's kind of similar where, the, you know, the things that he does are hard to perceive, but I don't think there's any question to me. I, I still think he's the best defensive player in the league. And I like call, call me biased, but for DPOI, if he didn't miss time with the back stuff. Agree. Cause they were, the Warriors were the best defense by a considerable margin. And, and it's not like other than him, there's any Peyton sure, but he's like a low minute guy um, to get, to get that done with, you know, Curry playing a ton of minutes. He's passable. Um, pool is a bad defender still. And, and, you know, Kaminga doesn't know what to do half the time still. There's a lot of guys getting minutes that just aren't, 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 aren't great defenders. So yeah, I, I, green can be underrated in that regard too. I, I think, I think he just gets overlooked because he doesn't do things that, uh, you know, pop out in the, in the box score to use another super hack, uh, take on him. To appreciate what he does in real time, you have to watch what's happening away from the ball. And for someone like me, and I try to fully admit this, just as someone who can't comprehend like the decision-making and real-time X's and O's of NBA basketball, you have to go back and watch things or read things about him. I think it was the, the breakdown he did with, was it Doris Burke on ESPN plus? I can't remember who he did it with, but I think it was Doris Burke. That was just exceptionally insightful. And I feel like that's probably where the discrepancy lies with this value. If you're only looking at the box score or expecting him, or you're watching the plays where you understand like, why are you passing up open opportunities at the rim? That like those are the things that are going to resonate more in real time. So I think he does have a case there, but in terms of just like someone who can carry an entire team and the the rush to prove that he can't, Steph Curry still like sort of checks that box for me. But again, maybe I'm galaxy braining this shit, not the spirit of this exercise. So the Rockets are weird. I said I wouldn't pick a rookie, but I'm basically going to pick a rookie. I'm going to hedge here. So Eric Gordon, I think is fair. And there, but there's also something I can't wrap my head around is he's either underrated because the fact that no one would give up a first round pick to get him at the deadline is blasphemous to me, or he's overrated because Houston wouldn't accept the first round pick to get him at the (laughs) deadline. And it's like, okay, what are you guys doing? He, I know people don't like his contract. That final season is only going to be guaranteed if you win a championship or he makes an all-star team and hits a minutes threshold and newsflash. I don't care. You're, if your fucking owner is Robert Sarver. If you win a championship or Eric Gordon makes an all-star team, you will be happy to pay out or should be happy to pay out that third-year salary. Also, this is not Russell Westbrook's expiring salary if for some reason it was guaranteed. You can move. I think it's like $22 million. That's l- less than half of what Westbrook is going to make next year. You can move off that expiring contract. Again, if it becomes guaranteed, which if it does, means that you probably won a title. So I just want to make that clear. He has been so valuable as just someone who he's done more with the ball in his hands. We know not only about his value as a three-point shooter, but the ultra-long distance threes when he's not on the ball, those help spread out in offense a ton, even when they're not necessarily going down. We've seen better iterations of the Rockets where he has shot worse overall from three, but the distance on his looks account for a lot of what the um, the geographical aesthetics, let's say, of uh, Houston's offense and its success. And then this season, like you want someone who can put real rim pressure without needing this huge head start in the half court, it is him. 
guys will, he can barrel through defenses. He's not a bad finisher. Um, there are a hundred and here's a stat. There are 158 players who have used or finished at least 200 drives this season. Eric Gordon is sixth in field goal percentage on drives among that group at 58 or excuse me, 57.7%. That is the only players in front of him are Joel Embiid, Giannis, Mikhail Bridges, Sabonis. And I bet this is the, I bet you can't even guess who's in first place. I don't know. It's Morant. It's Jokic. That caught me off guard because he's not getting to the basket on these plays. He's taking those like short little mid-rangers. He's shooting Jokic. This is not, Jokic shooting 70.2% on drives. That is, that leads the league among 158 players who have used at least 200. I'm sorry. That's absurd. Those aren't drives though. Those are saunters. Those are casual, casual sachets into the. I'm so stealing that for something. Nicole Jokic (laughs) leads the league in field goal percentage on downhill sachets. <laughs> so Eric Gordon, I think, has become underrated. And he's also someone that I don't know that I would call him a good defender, but if you needed him to defend up to the three spot, he can still do it. And so I would have traded for him. I really wanted Phoenix to trade for him. I think they would have been, they are title favorites, but I think they would have been a championship formality had they traded for Eric Gordon. That's how high on Eric Gordon I am and on Phoenix, obviously. But I have to pick Josh Christopher here. And I don't know how, how many people who listen to this podcast have seen a ton of him. He is pesky as hell. And there's like a, like, what if Mike Conley had an edge to his game? That's the vibe I get when I watch him. There's like a confidence when he's pulling up off the dribble. He makes these like very difficult passes look easy. But the fact that he's making them in the first place, there's like a bravado there to them. Uh, He can be like, I don't want to say he's a wizard at playmaking in the open floor, but he's dangerous as a decision maker in the open floor and he will work on defense. I am so intrigued by every single one of Houston's rookies. And I'll also give an honorable mention to Usman Garuba included, because it would have been nice if they just uncorked him a bunch this season. I understand he was considered one of the Ross prospects in the draft, but you talk about when I went back and watched minimal film on him. So I'll admit that <laughs> it looks like he might be able to defend 27 of the five positions that are on the floor, just on the <laughs> same uh, positions on the floor on the same possession. So I think Houston has a very intriguing asset base, but Josh Christopher is sort of, he was probably the rookie that was talked and not just because he was drafted lowest for them, but he was the rookie that was talked about the least among like those four in Shangun, uh, Garuba, and then of course, Jalen Green. I'm, he's another one of those players where I don't know what he's going to end up as in the NBA, but of non-star career ox, uh, ox, arcs. I can't talk today. It doesn't matter with me. Uh, too much podcasting over the past 12 hours. I'm going to be watching him because I think he's going to be really good and that the the Rockets mind a potential gem there. I, I, I like it. I, I would have gone Gordon too. I just think because I'm not really considering contracts so much for this, but I think that's part of the reason that he, he definitely gets into the underrated conversation. The only other name I'd throw out is Garrison Matthews. Just shooting matters. Um, I, I think, think he, he should be fired, but yes. Yeah, well, yeah. What he's he's your uh, uh, what what what's your Duncan Robinson comp for him? What you call Duncan Robinson, eighty million dollar Garrison Matthews, or yeah, ninety million, million dollar Garrison Matthews? <laughs> <laughs> it's not that far off, uh, except that Garrison Matthews does have a superpower, which is getting laid out, uh, trying to get over the top of screens and drawing offensive fouls. Nobody in the league is better than that, better at him, better at that than him. I can't talk either. Um, so like. I think if you look up in the hustle, I should have done this, but if you look up on NBA, NBA.com's hustle stats where they have charges drawn, he's got a whole bunch of them and like all of them are that where he's just getting, he just like 
bursts into flames when he tries to get around a big guy on a screen and like flies 20 feet away like in a, like a michael bay movie or something like he he's he's super good at that and he gets away with it all the time and it's great he draws um, fouls on offense too his free throw yeah he, he's, he takes normal zero. charges yeah. oh yeah, yeah no i see what you're saying yeah he's more than well he jumps way forward on his three-point shot too he's like he's he's like low-key one of the like best game like mo- has the most gamesmanship in the league uh for for like a guy that nobody ever sees you know what he kind of reminds me of did you ever play the three-point contest in like the nba live video games where it felt like if you held down the the shoot button long enough they would land inside the arc <laughs> yeah 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 that's, what he he, that's, Garrett, that's him yeah he's got that uh no eric gordon is the right pick uh we are now on to the uh los angeles clippers Another tough team, especially this year, because there's a bunch of guys that have been bumped up into, you know, bigger roles than they, they otherwise would have played. Um, so like, you know, Terrence Mann, I think probably, although he had that huge playoff game against the jazz that kind of might actually have him overrated. Um, but I like him a lot. I went with Nick Batum. Um, I'm pretty sure I mentioned him more than once on the East pod because I just like to compare guys that are low usage, smart, good passers, versatile defenders. I feel like all my underrated guys have kind of fit that mold. Um, but I think a couple of factors kind of add to him being underrated. And one is that I, I still feel like he's thought of in tandem with the 2016 contract he signed that was immediately like one of the worst, you know, that was what you'd point to when it went bad for him in Charlotte as like one of the worst, you know, 2016 deals in a summer of really terrible ones. Um, but you know, again, not his fault. What, like you're going to say no to that. Like, what? <laughs> you know, you have, big deal. I could see Charlotte Hornets fans being a little peeved though. Just like, this is what he becomes after he, like, right. Him give it, he was never a locker room problem there to his credit, but like he's doing so much more for the Clippers over the past two seasons than he did over his final two in Charlotte. Yeah. No, I, I agree. I, and part of that was injury. I think he had an elbow injury yeah. towards the end of that, but he just he disappointed. He didn't live up to the contract, and I don't I don't hold that against him. Um, you know, four position defender. He's a he's slowed down a little bit. I think you know last year was really the revelation that because you know he was kind of on the way out. It seemed like, um, but still, you know, in three of the last four years, um, in in terms of points per shot attempt, he's kind of up you know above the 80th percentile. So he doesn't shoot a lot. He doesn't create a lot of his own offense, but he makes the shots that are created for him and he moves the ball quick when he doesn't have it. So I just think, you know, on a team like the the Clippers that are going to be built around stars in theory, once everybody's healthy um, and can just put these nasty, you know, all everybody's six, seven to six, nine lineups on their, on the floor in a playoff game, but figures into that heavily. And the fact that he doesn't need, anything drawn up for him to be effective, like really matters when you're going to have two high usage stars. Um, so I know I will concede that, you know, the advanced metrics don't like him. The on off stuff doesn't like him this year. Um, but I'm just, I'm just, I'm just thinking of him in terms of what he means to this team at full strength and just like, you know, what he actually is capable of doing on the floor. I don't think is appreciated very much. I think you. I, that's a. I think that's the right answer. I think you can make a case for Norman Powell, given what it cost to get him out of Portland. That was an abomination of a trade by the Blazers. I'll stand by that. Unless Keon Johnson turned into this next big thing, or they use their flexibility to actually do something inspiring this offseason, I would bet against the latter. I'd bet against both those scenarios coming out. I think I might have picked Amir Coffee though. Just, mm. and I don't know if this is sort of a an instance of um, circumstance where. He's putting up, no, they're not gaudy numbers, but like he's having an opportunity he wouldn't otherwise have. 
They've given him more on-ball responsibility because of what their you know point guard rotation has become. He's been solid for them defensively. He's shooting 54% basically on twos, nearly 37% on mostly above the break triples this season. There's a plug and play element to his offense, but he can get by defenders when he's um, using his left hand. So I think that he's someone who becomes, he's found money right now, but if you scale him to the longer term version of this roster, he fits with the motif that you just outlined of let's just throw out these hellacious lineups that don't necessarily have a big, and they're going to defend their asses off and be able to do a bunch of different things on offense. I'm just not sure given how much credit LA has received for one, it's defense. And then two, I think we've looked at players like Reggie Jackson, the co- the coaching job, of course, of, of Ty Lue even more. Amir Coffey has just been like absolutely rock solid for them. And that's after playing, you know, this is, I look at this as essentially his rookie season too, because he's played sub, it was about 60 games in his first two years combined before this season. He's already played in at this recording 60 games this year. So I'm fascinated to see whether he's someone who sticks with them because at like six, seven, handle the ball a little bit, shoot threes off the catch and above the break. Like you don't even need him to stand in the corner. I know above the break, technically he could be in the way if that's where he's standing, but they don't need to be these short threes. He's shooting better on above the break threes than on corner triples this season. I'm just, I'm intrigued by him. And so the Clippers have done, they've been scrappy as any, anyone this year. And I think that they've found, you know, just like they found Nick Batum last year, I feel like they're, and Terrence Mann as well. Um, they're finding like Isaiah Hartenstein and Amir Coffee. Like those are guys that I think can help them when they're at full strength. Yeah. And I think, you know, some, sometimes in a position like this, where the, the big guns are out, and it's kind of becomes a, it's like a, well, somebody has got to get the number situation, you know, if, if, but the Clippers aren't a bad team. So it's not, it's not like, you know, to just, it's not like we're, we're struggling to find, Oh, like, man, look at this guy on the Pistons or the, or the Rockets or the, or the magic or whatever that's getting numbers. And coffee is not coffee is different than that because the Clippers are actually competitive and it's not like he's just putting up volume. So it's, it, it, it is kind of similar in that, like he wouldn't have gotten this shot had the Clippers been as good as they wanted to be. but. The fact that you know somebody's got to get these numbers uh, it doesn't mean that he, his numbers are are meaningless. Like they might be on a bad team. It's it's a little bit different. If anything, it would be like if he was averaging fifteen points. Let's see, he was averaging double the points. So he's at eight point eight for the year. If he was averaging fifteen points per game and he was shooting like forty three percent on twos and thirty like three yeah. percent, like then it's oh, is this a matter of volume? But it's he's on a team that really hasn't been that great on offense this year, and they've been banged up, like no Paul George, no Kawhi, and then even losing Norman Powell immediately after they get him. <laughs> so uh, I'm I'm interested to see. And he's he's like he's not young, but he's young. He's 24, and so this is someone that I think could help them or another team just moving forward. Do I have to pick someone for the Lakers? I'm glad you do because I have no idea who I would pick. I'm going to scramble while you start talking. <laughs> so I like stared at their death chart for forever and I didn't even know who to pick. I, I think this is the state of their team. I think you can make a case for Mello. I'm not going to, but I think you can make a case for Mello because he is still like, he's clearly not a star and he's going to hurt you on defense, but the lineups they have him in this year where there are times where he's basically the center, even if he's not actually the center. And then he's quietly just playing way more minutes than he should but also shooting way better than you would think he would on threes and averaging more points than he would. Just I I respect that when you're now in your late 30s and you're still able to get outside buckets with any semblance of a fit. I don't care how they're coming, and there's still shots he takes where it's like, oh, 
this is too much mellow. That's not Melo's fault anymore. There's too much mellow because the Lakers built their roster. Uh, they Their offseason was, I don't know what, it, it was It was a disaster, and we don't need to belabor it. I went with Austin Reeves. Yeah. I, I, I don't think that there's, unless you really believe in sort of the, you know, Malik Monk has come on this year. I don't think that makes him underrated. I, I firmly believe that he probably could have gotten more than minimum money elsewhere, or maybe he couldn't have. I thought about this too, because when he signed with the Lakers, they had given Kendrick Nunn more money at the time. So I like, if you want to say he's the pick here, that's fine. If you want to say it's town Horton Tucker, who's come on of late, I kind of get that. I just feel like he should be way better defensively than he is. There are games where it actively looks like he's trying to help the other team extend their lead when he's on defense. So I went with Austin Reeves just because I, I, I guess the out of nowhere element here, but he's hit enough of his spot up triples to be a threat from out there. And he is basically the only Lakers guard that can st- or wing that consistently stays in front of anyone on defense. So to see him work there, and he's also like shooting 70 plus percent between four and 14 feet and 73% at the rim. It's minimal volume. We're talking about a sub 50 shot sample size here so far. I don't care just because he's been like very, like he, you, you watch him and it's like, this is someone who, even if LA was a little bit better, he might actually be in their rotation. I do not think that he is a substitute for Alex Caruso just because they're both Caucasian and were surprisingly good uh, and came out of nowhere, I guess, for the Lakers. But he's been solid for them, and the effort he gives them on defense is just worlds better than what they're getting from so many other players who who are supposed to figure in more prominently. I just I feel weird because I, I also feel like we could pick Malik Monk or Austin Reeves, and it could be a case of, well, they're overrated because they are getting a ton of attention since they do play for the Lakers. But amid a really shit-tastic season, I feel like he's one of the scant few silver linings that have emerged. I think I think that's the right pick. That's the only real option here because it's the Lakers and it's hard for anyone to be uh, underrated. Um, but I think just within the context of the team, like they're playing LeBron at center, and Reeves is constantly, like almost everybody else, guarding up a position. And so, and there's no, there's no backline help. So like he has to be super aggressive and he has to like, he, I've seen, I swear it is anecdotal again, but he's had more than more than once, like cha- like recovery chase down block in the half court where he just gets beat and there's nobody behind him to protect the rim. And he gets there and he puts, he pins it to the glass. Like he's still, he's still really, really competitive in a situation where like nobody else is trying, which is also a factor. Uh, for being underrated, so I, I like that pick. I don't. I don't have anybody else even really close. In I'm also one. still amazed. I know I just said he's shooting. I think a little bit over 37 percent on spot up triples. But there are teams. Uh, there are more teams I would expect that like kind of fall for his pump and drive game. And he's pretty good at the pump and drives. But it's also like at the end of the day, it's Austin Reeves. Like, why don't you right. just let him take that shot? Like, why are we overreacting to um, to a potential shot attempt from Austin Reeves? But I'm not. I don't even mean to troll him. He's been one of the very few bright spots of their season. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, I have the Grizzlies and uh, I, I'm going to start my run of big, uh, it's only too long. Um, I went with Steven Adams and um, I think like Batum, the contract is a problem for him in terms of how he's perceived. And I think also because he's a big guy that can barely move, it looks like sometimes, which is, you know, just basically going extinct and is almost has almost gone extinct in the league that hurts him. But like, 
you think of the team. So he's been, he's kind of had the, he's had a little bit of a trip, you know, over the last several years, cause he was there through several iterations of some cha- like very good and then very different and very, uh, I don't know, uh, ever changing thunder teams. Uh, and then he was on the Pelicans weirdly. And now he's on the Grizzlies, he was but his, his, well, right. Doesn't that feel like that never happened? Um, <laughs> But his his on-offs are good every year. So and that's through and again, like I've said this last time, those are noisy, except when you're changing teams as often as he has, and the personnel around you keeps changing, and the one constant is you're you're going against starters every night and your team outscores them. And so eventually the you know correlation becomes causation to some extent. Um so that's the first thing I kind of looked at with him. The other thing this is just like the great, of course, Stephen Adams leads in all this stuff. League leader in screen, total screen assists, league leader in box outs. Uh, and so as a result, um, and, and he crushes, he's got by far the most box outs on the offensive boards because he just like can't be moved. And when a shot goes up, he just, I would like to stand here now, please, gentlemen, please get out of the way. I will, I will occupy this space right under the hoop and nobody can do anything. And so Memphis leads the league in second chance points by like a ton. And that's, that's like, it's cause of him. That's it. Full stop. Partly like, it's just, that's an asset to a team. And it's not something you think about when you're valuing players. Um, so that's also part of the reason that his positive net swings are mostly on offense. Um, defensively, not so great because of his mobility, but he adds a ton on offense just cause he gets in the middle of the middle of the restricted area and can't be moved by anybody. So that's huge. Um, Raptor has him number two on Memphis, uh, <laughs> which is hilarious. Uh, EPM doesn't like him quite as much, but he's still in the positive there. Um, he's also a good passer. He's, his assist percentages are always high for his position. Um, and he's decent if he's the primary defender at, at the rim inside six feet. About 58% is the field goal percentage allowed, which is like not elite, but it's good. It's better than, better than average. So all that put together with like his really sneaky value on offense, which I don't think most people would attribute, you would think of first with him. Um, I think he's still like a really good, you know, better than average, maybe fringy, like top 12 starting center in the league. Um, and is the type of guy that like just keeps showing up on really good teams. So um, I, I really like him. I think he doesn't, he, he's gotten a bad rap because of the money and because of just the position and the way he plays it. And that trade was roasted when they did it because the thought was that they gave up just a lot of Valanciunas was the better player. I think overall you still make that argument, but Steven Adams has still been good for Memphis. And when that sort of coincides with the growth you've seen from Jaron Jackson Jr. on both ends of the floor, um, that is super valuable to you. So yeah, there's still just a dirty work guy who does everything well. And like you said, he doesn't move as well on defense anymore, but that's just like, and I'm worried about, I think he's going to be valuable to them in the playoffs. I one wonder how they sort of hold up defensively though, when he's on the court at the same time, their offense makes me uneasy because of how predicated on getting out in transition or second chance opportunities. Um, it, it, like just how reliant it is on both of those play types. And they're going to need the latter because I imagine that when you have time to really zero in on a team for a best of seven series, you're going to be able to take away unless you play the Lakers. A lot of those transition, opportunities maybe not in the first round depending on who you pull but definitely in the second round so he could end up being incredibly valuable to them my pick for this team and i i'm like mad i'm not mad i'm happy for desmond bain but i was 
I'm normally behind the eight ball. I was so far in front of the eight ball with him. I saw him in summer league and I was like, he is going to be so good this year, but he was just so good immediately that Desmond Bain is mainstream. Desmond Bain yeah. is mainstream now. Think about that. He, Kyle, he might be in danger of being overrated pretty soon. Like fair enough. He's, he's gone closer to, like, to that. He's been, he's been like returning to solid ground lately. So that's fair. My, and I think you could just make a case for Kyle Anderson. The pace at which he plays is all his own. It's so like idiosyncratic. I love it. But my pick is Tyus Jones. I just like solid when, and also when he's like actually hitting threes at anything that's resembling an okay clip, I just don't know. Like he is one of the best single best backup point guards in the NBA. 50.2% on twos this year, 36.5% on threes. True shooting is is still all over the place. It's not great under 54, but this guy does not turn the ball over in the three point era, which is as far as turnover percentage goes back. Here's a list of every player to assist on at least 25% of their team's buckets when they're on the court. So have a 25 assist percentage or higher when they're on the floor while having a turnover rate under eight and they have to qualify for minutes per game. So I wanted volume in here. Here's a list of every player with an under eight turnover rate and an over 25 assist percentage for the year. Tyus Jones, that is the end of the list. That is, I know he, I know what type of role he's playing and I know he's not some like genius maestro but that is incredible to me. And like the only comps that come up is so like Kemba 8.3 turnover rate in 2014, 2015, Michael Jordan, 8.4 turnover rate in 92, 93 T-Mac in 2002, 2003, Michael Jordan, again, Vince Carter. So it's like, and by the way, Tyus Jones appears twice in the top 10 on this list. <laughs> so it's all these secondary playmakers who weren't even, except for Kemba Walker, um, except there was 24 year old Kemba Walker. And he was like, he was the fact that he only had a 27 assist percentage that season is indicative of how score first he was at that time. Still, aside from Kemba Walker, like you're looking at mostly these secondary playmakers, whereas Tyus Jones is the actual backup point guard here. So there's just a, the ability to protect the ball and run just sound plays and not make mistakes is is huge. And that's someone I, I believe he's entering free agency this year. I'd be curious to see what he gets or whether they feel the need to keep him around because they have higher end concerns or higher end priorities on this roster, but like they don't really have, you know, the Anthony Melton doesn't play the same type of game. Um, do you want Zaire Williams to take on like the, the maestro reps? He's been, I actually really, I'm way higher on Zaire Williams than I was at the start of the season. You think Desmond Bain can take on that type more playmaking responsibilities. He just might be someone who low key, they need to keep around for, for a minute. Yeah, Jones is a, is an example of another player type that is always underrated. In addition to the like the the guy who guards four positions that we keep covering, and, and he just like he doesn't do anything wrong, right? Like the worst he can be is an adequate game manager who will not turn it over, will take the right shots, and like defensively he's pretty he's he's undersized, but like he's always way up there in steals per minute. Um, he's always up there in deflections. He never fouls like ever. <laughs> it's unbelievable how he can play backward defense without fouling. That's really hard to do. So yeah, I love that pick. Uh, I love that as a, as another one, this go figure Memphis, one of the best teams in the league has a bunch of guys that are underrated from, from a small market that, that, that kind of checks out. I have Minnesota. They were kind of tough because I don't know if we're at the point where, um, Jaden McDaniels or Jared Vanderbilt are considered properly rated because I do Vanderbilt's gotten a lot of look if it first of all if uh, if an energy drink took bodily form 
it would be Jared <laughs> Vanderbilt. But I feel like he's gotten a lot of praise for his defensive energy this year and being recognized as one of the best contracts in the NBA, the fact that he, they were able to get him that cheaply. So I'm going to settle on Jane McDaniels because I feel like he's gotten less love this year since it turns out, oh, hey, he's not going to shoot 40% from three on a ton of volume. And so you look at him on offense and you're like, yeah, there's stuff that he can do on drives um, and when he gets to the basket, but how often is he actually going to do that? 31.3% on mediocre volume of threes is, is definitely a concern still. And I'll get to his defense in a minute, 58.2% on twos. And there's a little bit more directionality to what he does inside the arc than I think there was last year where it's, yeah, he's still going to be at his best when he can make the, the straight line B line towards the basket, but he can still sort of navigate the floor in more complex fashion than that. And then you look at what he does on defense as a 21 year old, he can be stifling. And then there's just the way he moves is like a blur and it's not a blur in the sense of North South. It's this East West haze of speed. And he is, I would say defensively invigorating to where I don't know if he can ever be, you know, in on the, he's not going to be in the same conversations as like a Matisse Thibel all the time. And I'm not even talking about in terms of disruption, but of, of the scope of assignments necessarily that he covers, but he can be, I think the second best defender for one of the league's best defensive teams. And when you talk about defensive anchors, I think you're inclined to assume that we mean bigs for the most part as, and I'll, and I, other people have said this, but like when you look at a Mikhail Bridges, I think there's proof that, yeah, you can build a defense around like what a perimeter guy does, or even in certain lineups, like where Giannis isn't on the court this season, like you can build a defense around Drew Holiday type players. So I'm not saying that, um, Jane McDaniels is that guy, but the fact that he can be the second guy to that guy, whether it's a big or a, another perimeter defender, I think is super important. And if he does develop just a standstill, consistent standstill three point stroke, where he's hitting, let's say 35, 36% of his off the catch threes. And that translates into the postseason. You have one of the, you have the single most valuable role player archetype in the NBA is just that positional malleability on defense coupled with it's not three and D like there's a little bit more to his offense when you put the ball in his hands. Yeah. I like that. I would have, I would have gone Vanderbilt just because I, I still think that if, unless you're watching a lot of Wolves games, you don't really appreciate like just how incredibly frenetic and nonstop, you know, his activity is, um, which like to McDaniels McDaniels has a similar value because the theory for me of this team was always going to be like, man, if you're going to play, Towns and Russell and Edwards, you better have two just lights out energy, dirty work, defensive guys out there. And, and they do like, and that's, I mean, the stars are the reason the wolves are good, but they've got the right to kind of unsung type of defense first guys uh, mixed into that, mixed into that unit. So I think I like Vanderbilt just because of the, like, he's always at cranked to 11. Cocaine always, incarnate. Like, fun to watch. He's, yeah. He's, he's not, it's crazy. Whatever you want to call it. Watch the Timberwolves just just for him because he's he's a lot of fun. Um, I have the New Orleans Pelicans, and this was a hard one for me. Um, I feel like Herb Jones is well. You tell me. Do you think everybody's on to Herb Jones to the extent you can be on to like a, a rookie, uh, you know, defense first guy on a small market team? Because I feel like people know. I would say yes, but I do sometimes feel like when you and this isn't. I'm not even trying to sound elitist here, but when you're do what we do. We're plugged into a level of NBA Twitter that's different from maybe people who aren't doing what we do, like what they're consuming, because 
my our our friend Adam and the co-host of this podcast tweeted that he would have Herb Jones on first team all rookie basically and I don't think that's an egregious thing to say but he caught so much shit yeah. on Twitter yeah. for it. So I think you could still go him but from my perspective I've read so many tweets and like even appreciation articles for him it's like I I've been like overstimulated with Herb Jones but that yeah. doesn't mean that he's not underrated he's definitely not overrated i don't think that's that's a thing for him yet right so i shied away because i'm in the same silo that you are where it's like oh yeah herb jones is going to be on you know six all defensive first teams in the next decade like it's just a given and you know not on herb that's like the pelicans do that every time he has a a great play defensively in the you know on home games so it, it probably should be him I went with Valanchunas, I think probably because I had just done Steven Adams and I was like, you know what? These he's like plotting bigs. Nobody appreciates him anymore. And Valanchunas does a lot of the same stuff Adams does. He's kind of right up there with him in terms of box outs and you know the second chance points he generates because he's similar in that he's just too strong for the way bigs are sort of constituted physically now in the league. He's just always, unless he's playing Steven Adams or Joel Embiid or Jokic, he's just gonna have a physical advantage. And he's a good post player. He just overpowers people, except he's actually a good three-point shooter. And he doesn't take a lot. And he kind of milks this upfake that he has, this super slow-mo upfake. But it still works sometimes. And he, he can put it on the on the deck for a couple dribbles and, like, make something happen. Um, not going to go all the way to the basket, but he's he's capable in that regard. So I think that kind of distinguishes him from the – the Adams where you got to rely on knocking people over screen assists, box outs, like that type of thing. Um, and I think too, it's kind of wild that he's in the top 10 in screen assists. Um, and the Pelicans like don't have a pick and roll guard or certainly didn't uh, until CJ McCollum got there. And he, and he's not that type of guard. So a lot better. I don't know if this was just the way they were using him in Portland, but even during the non game stretches, I just feel like he's shown a level of passing that wasn't really there in. Yeah. Portland. Didn't have an opportunity or wasn't asked to do it or wasn't, there wasn't the confidence in him, but I think, I think so to that end, I think McCollum and Valanciunas could like, you know, if they get some chemistry going, they can play together enough. I think that that's like, that's workable. I don't know how much that matters if Zion has the ball again, if that ever happens, but it's nice to have. Um, he's basically the second best player on the team. If you're looking at, you know, the advanced alphabet soup numbers, um, like Adams, he always has positive differentials basically over the last half decade. And this year it's a big, it's like a plus nine when I last looked. So um, another big guy, I, I guess I'm getting a, a soft spot for them because I, I, I like the variety in the league and, and, as much fun as, as downsizing and, you know, the Raptors approach and and what the Clippers are going to be able to do with all these big wings. Um, I think it's still kind of fun if there's just like a monster out there that just is shouldering people around and, and Alan Tunis is doing it effectively. It's not just like he's a, he's just being a brute. This was a team I'm happy. I didn't have to do because I was trying not to pick rookies and I would have picked a rookie. Uh, It would have been Herb Jones or Jose Alvarado who would be my actual pick. He is six foot and he looks it when he, he looks like he might be five, eight when he's running around the yeah. court with like some bigger guys, the energy he brings. And like, yeah, he'll like, he can score just enough if he's going to actually take shots, but some of the passes he's able to throw in the pocket, um, nice bounce passes. He just seems to have like really good chemistry with everyone around him, his defensive energy. Oh my God. There was a play. And I actually brought this up on a podcast I recorded recently where we talked about the Pelicans it, it was garbage time against Phoenix, but he's like 
derailing Bismack Biombo's role to the basket. So there's six foot Jose Alvarado just like cutting in front of him. And he's, I think he was basically face guarding him down there too. And so he plays with like a, a freneticness and energy on defense where it's, Oh, he might have a career here, even though he's only six foot and could technically get torched. I'm not saying Bismarck Biombo is like the, the barometer for, you know, a smaller guard to show that he's a good defender, but doing things like that. So if you're watching the Pelicans and they're, they're giving Jose Alvarado run, give him a look just on defense, offense, away from the ball, whatever. I think he can kind of, he's probably the closest thing to an actual floor general they have right now, just because is that Devontae Graham? Is it McCollum? I think Brandon Ingram actually might be that guy. Uh, traditional point guard style, though, he is way more of a floor general than Devontae Graham and certainly than the injured Kyra Lewis Jr. Uh, I think you also could go with, just based off the reaction to the trade, Larry Nance Jr., where it's like, I know he's been injured a lot, but the Pelicans were panned nationally, at least for the way that they obliterated flexibility, which I don't want to belabor this point because I've said it on the podcast before. We just wrapped up an offseason where we were shitting all over them because they tried to use cap face to get Chris Paul and Kyle Lowry. And now we're going to get mad at them for wasting potential future flexibility to get good players. Larry Nance Jr. is just really good. And his injuries can overshadow that fact. Also how bad Portland was this season. But everyone loved that trade when Portland made it at the time. And what's funny about Portland is they made a bunch of those moves where it was like, oh, you liked the Robert Covington trade at the time. It's just that they kept aiming for singles and doubles when they should have went for home runs. But he's just not, it was like when Robert Covington was used as a throw-in in the Powell deal, basically. Or when Danny Green was just sent to Toronto in the Kawhi Leonard deal. And I know that there's like math and money making it work. There are other ways to go about that. Um, I kind of view him in that same vein where it's like, if Zion comes back next year healthy and Larry Ash Jr. is healthy, that's like a front court. Like if you don't want to play Valanciunas or Jackson Hayes alongside Zion for certain stretches, that's a front court. And if you have Herb Jones and Brandon Ingram with the way he's defended this season, and then maybe you just go with CJ McCollum because you don't really need a point guard if you have Zion, CJ. That lineup could do some real damage and is super versatile. So I think Larry Nance Jr. is probably the bigger name that could be underrated. My actual pick would be Jose Alvarado because in terms of this year's, I'll put this in quotes, rookie class, since Alvarado obviously is not technically the rookie. He's the rookie. Um, he just hasn't entered the fold of, wow, look how deep this year's rookies are. He's, he doesn't feel like he's a part of that discourse just yet. Yeah, I like it. I dig it. I like, I like when the defense first point guard gets a, little note, gets a little love. That's good. Oklahoma City was mine. And Oof. I could have went with Kenrich Williams here because the fact that no one offered enough to get him via trade from OKC at the deadline just proves to me that he's underrated. But if OKC really wanted a first-round pick plus other stuff for him with a year left on his contract, Maybe he is more properly rated than I thought. I'm going to step out on a limb here and say that for so long, we viewed Alexei Pokashevsky as this novelty. And I know he's only been in the league for a year and change. He's a real NBA prospect. If you watch him this season, like more recently since he re-entered the rotation, I think just before Shea Gildas Alexander came back, there is a rhyme and a reason in actual coherence to his game now. And it can still look funky. There are still like the moments of like a plum that really he hasn't earned where he's going to be way too overconfident what he can do. He fits all of a sudden off the ball. He's hustled on a bunch of defensive plays, um, even from behind, but really just as some nice rotations. He can still do some, some on ball stuff. I'm intrigued of, yeah, it'd be nice if he can face up, work off the dribble, attack the basket, hit these crazy fadeaways, these, these pull-ups, 
maybe he does do that. But the fact that he can move around off the ball or hit shots off the catch now, or sort of find crevices in a half court defense, um, in half court defenses, even though the Thunder don't traditionally operate with a ton of room in half court anyway, that's like a big deal. And it's another case of I don't know that I would call him a potential cornerstone. I'm not that high on him. He's a real NBA prospect, though. And I feel like we kind of lost sight of that last year because he looked and played like more of a shot in the dark novelty than anything else. Yeah, I am so glad I didn't get this team. <laughs> I just like I think I think Pokashevsky for sure is is I don't I just don't know how he's viewed around the league. Um it's it's so hard for me to get a gauge on him. I I I I don't know. Like Aaron Wiggins had a minute there and Trey Mann has moments. Uh I I Darius Baisley's defense doesn't receive enough credit too. I just still don't trust anything he does on offense and enough. I was just gonna say every time I watch him. He does some, he's like the million dollar move, five cent finish guy. Like he, he'll do this incredible, you know, he'll do something remarkable for a player his size to get to the basket and he'll smoke the layup or he'll just, it's just like, it's not all quite there, but yeah, defensively he has real value that I guess he might've been my pick. I also would have tried to find a way to just shoehorn Josh Giddy in there because I think he's in like the top 5% of NBA players right now in terms of like how he maps the floor and the way that he sees uh, you know, all nine people moving. And I don't think that's something that, you know, necessary, but like he's, you know, 12, eight and six as a rookie. I think probably everybody's kind of onto the fact On that he's going to be really good. Shooting. I do think that's yeah. a concern too. For I sure. Thought, for sure. I thought about um, JRE, Jeremiah Robinson Earl for a minute, but he hasn't played in six weeks. And just like they were, they just, you, they decided, Hey, he's a center in the NBA at six, nine. And I don't think he was, they've had a scrappy defense. They are. I haven't checked this in a while, but per cleaning the glass, they were the only team as of last week that ranked in the top seven of both um, the frequency with which opponents reach the rim and then opponent field goal percentage at the rim. And so it's like, okay, one of those things is can be lucky, not both of them. And right. you had him playing a lot of your center minutes. You can also go Mike Muscala here. Just they clearly wouldn't trade him for a reason and he stretched the floor for them. But yeah, they, they were a tough team. Aaron Wiggins didn't sustain. He was the one that I had circled and I... I tend to not, there's been a lot of strong feelings about Trey Mann in recent months. And I can't, I feel, this is the best way to frame it. It's only because they have the same first name. I'm way higher on the future of Trey Jones in San Antonio than I am on Trey Mann in Oklahoma City. If, if, if we're comparing Trey's. framing there, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think Muscala, Mus, I mean, Muscala's shooting 43% from three. Uh, like, so, and I mean, that's, that's, I don't, I don't think you would have pegged that coming into the season. So, um, or that he was arguably like one of their most positively impactful players uh, per minute, but yeah, that, I'm, I'm super, super glad you got that team. And not I'm happy. I'm happy. I didn't get the next team. Yeah, they were, this was the hardest one for me. Um, <laughs> because it's the same thing we talked about with the bucks. I talked about with the warriors, like everybody kind of has a gauge of what the suns are and who matters. And, like we're past the point, like Mikhail Bridges got $90 million. He's not underrated anymore. Everybody acknowledges he's, if not the best, he's one of the best wing defenders in the league. He makes threes. He's got more off. The, so we can't, we can't do that. Aiton's really good. Everybody knows it. Uh, Jay Crowder has been around for what feels like a thousand years and just does the same two stuff. trillion percent on floaters this year. It just, everybody knows he's good. Chris Paul, we're going to do Chris Paul, Devin Booker. So I just did, I just did Cam Johnson, um, which, I I don't know like that's love man he, that's love he, he's so another love. guy that we know what he does he's probably properly rated um but like 45% from deep um 
he holds up defensively. He's okay there. He's like Bridges a year and two years ago is adding like the one dribble and two dribble stuff when he gets run off the line. He's like, he's capable, that type of thing. He plays a position that's just super valuable, the, the combo forward spot. And, and if you can hold up defensively and make threes, cool. He's admittedly like not asked to do a lot because I was looking. So he takes 5.9 threes a game. 5.7 of them are either open or wide open. So like he's got just, it's easy pickings for him, but like he's still got to make them and he does make them. So um, all that package of, of he's doing this on a team that is, is getting everyone's full attention every night um, that is playing, you know, he's done it against great teams. He's done it in playoff runs. Like, so it's just, it's almost by default, but I do think of, of the players on the Suns that maybe don't get appreciated enough. I, I just, I kind of had to go with him, but this team was, was, easily the most difficult in the West for me. I probably went, or I probably would have went with Cam Johnson myself, just because I actually think there's more to his offensive game than just hitting those threes. And he's someone who can fly around in the half court and then hit those quick fire threes. He has like a nice connection with the players around him. If they need him to pass. Um, we've seen like he, him show these, I just don't think he's asked to do it enough. And he was doing a little bit more of it after the Chris Paul injury. And then during that brief time, they didn't have Devin Booker before Cam Johnson gets injured where he can hit some like off the dribble middies. So, I think it has to be him just because there's a level of player there where he's the Suns' sixth man. And you're at a point where it's like, how do you find he – he's someone who should be playing 30 minutes per game. And even if the, the Suns sort of mishmash their rotation a little bit, I don't know how you find him 30 minutes a game just because of no. how important your top five players are. I do think – you could go with Aaron Holiday based off how well he has played since the trade deadline for them. I think you could also go Aiton. And this might be recency bias for me kicking in, but I just – expected I don't know if I expected a drop off but it felt like there was going to be a lot of self-discovery within the Suns when Chris Paul got injured as to what Aiton's value really was and I think he's earned himself a bunch of or solidified himself a bunch of money in restricted free agency by how by and large well he's played on offense without Chris Paul and the our good friends over the timeline pod Mike V Hill and Sam Cooper and then also David on Twitter is at the the four point play with four spelt written as IV. They've pointed this out a bunch. Like Aiton is shooting like 60 something percent or, or ridiculous on hook shots this year. And so he has that aspect to his game. Um, he just still doesn't go up with as much force as you want, but the fact that the finesse within his game or like the, the touch that's a little bit further out from the basket than you would like is, is coming along. That's big for them. And there's what he does defensively. I, I personally think that Mikhail Bridges is the, the best defender and most important defender on the Suns team. I think there'll be some people that make the case that it is Aiton. And if you look at just, I know we're dealing with someone on a rookie contract, but if you just look at where he was in his rookie season and then fast forward to now, the, you know, he was still really good last year, but just like make the entire leap to this point. He's someone, the fact that we can have a conversation is, is DeAndre Aiton like the anchor of the Suns defense is just like yeah. a wild thing to think. So they're not a team that I wanted because the options are just so sparse, but also maybe because, I they're one of my favorite watches. I find it funny when people say that they play too slow and they're like per predictable. They're like fifth in average possession time because it's like, yeah, yeah, they're not traditional transition, but like they get out and semi transition and make quick decisions. And they're just so, so good. So they're so good that I don't know if they have anyone who's underrated. I think it's Cam Johnson just because we probably don't know the full extent of his game just yet, even with sort of the flickers into um, his offensive polio that, uh, polio offensive portfolio that we've gotten 
that would leave me with, I also didn't want this team, by the way, because they've just mm. undergone so much like changes that they're barely recognizable. Uh, it's the Portland Trailblazers. I don't even know. I, I really wanted to be the, the asshole that went with through Eubanks because I couldn't believe that the Raptors just waived him. I think he's someone who, after they traded him, but uh, or acquired him via trade. I, I'm just going to settle on Josh Hart here. If you want to make the case for Trendon Watford, who I think there's like a, when I watch him move on the court, like end to end, I just want to move that gracefully and that purposely. And the, it's just, I don't know, like if it means anything, like he can find spaces when he's weather in the open floor, if there's like tight spots and he just feels like he's where he needs to be, whether it's with her, like, is, is he going to the ball? Is he getting around the basket, preparing for a pass, making, you know, navigating this path away from the ball in the half court to get ready for that pass. Um, I feel like sometimes he is the reason, yeah, there's attention being given to some of their ball handlers uh, pre Anthony Simons injury, since they just don't have, when you just look at who's available right now for this team, it's, it's laughable, but uh, it feels like he has moved himself open in a lot of half court sets, which says a lot. I think now with all that said, I just feel like Josh Hart, super rock solid player. He has never received enough credit. I think for what he can do on defense, like there's a center of gravity there that probably if you really wanted to extend him one through four consistently enough, you could, he is always someone that I think you look at or you watch him or just anecdotally, you think that he shoots a lot better on three, three pointers than he actually does. And so it'd be nice if that aspect of his game was stronger, uh, but he, and he has looked his credit he's shooting almost 36% on threes in Portland. That's just not a high number, but he can really get things moving downhill uh, inside the yard. 57.3% on twos since joining the Blazers and 59.2% from on twos overall this year. That is a guy where I think if you want to build a contender, it's almost of the different players, but where I think that Jay Crowder just makes sense on every single contender. I could say almost the same about, Josh Hart. The three-point volume makes it a little iffy. I think Jake Crowder is a better defender overall, but that's the brand of player that I feel like he's quietly developed into. I think the only thing that's overrated, aside from if you if you consider him three and D, when the three hasn't necessarily always been there, there's definitely evidence when you look at the numbers and just the context of them that his rebounding is just not all that valuable. But it's still someone who's six five and can grab you just a bunch of rebounds. Like there's, you know, we're not. This is not Russell Westbrook egregious where you have eight, like eight guys boxing out just to get Russell Westbrook the rebound. So he's my pick with the caveat. There, maybe there are a bunch of guys here that are underrated because they're trying to find stuff out about their future while they don't have literally anyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I think it's probably hard. If you wanted to kind of t like really do some gymnastic, I think Simons could be someone you'd mention only because I'm not sure since no one's watching this team and since Dame got hurt, nobody has watched this team. I'm not sure everybody's kind of up on like Simons is someone that is going to shoot 40% from deep. He's got such a pretty shot. It's so easy. You hear like he shoots an easy ball, like Donovan Mitchell shoots an easy ball. Simons is in that class, um, except it, it like he's 22. So I think, I think Simons as like a guy that he's another, you know, we talked last time, if you're, if you're thinking about guys that are going to make like capital L leaps, I think he is on definitely on that list, maybe on the very short list of it. Um, I'm not sure everybody's aware of that. Maybe, maybe they are. I, I don't know. It doesn't feel like he's, you know, got the national consciousness type of thing. Uh, What's also yet, but. probably important there is that his performance translated to a much worse Blazers team. 
And there's, you can call those empty numbers then, but the fact that he was still hyper-efficient and like hitting these toggling between these from scratch trays or these ultra deep catch and shoot opportunities. And I also think we've seen, I wouldn't say he's on the same level as CJ McCollum when McCollum was traded or anything he's done in new Orleans, but there's a difference in the, in the decisions he's making on the move as a passer where there was real tunnel vision there through his first two years, again, in limited samples, but it feels like he's more trustworthy there. I I get, I just thought of this. So, you know, walk me back, but I, I feel like there's a little Zach Levine type of development trajectory for him where you, you knew immediately, like this guy's a monster athlete. Like he's, he's been in the dunk contest and, and now like the ease and the smoothness and the, the versatility of his three point shot, and and kind of getting past the tunnel vision thing like there's a lot of parallels i think i i don't i don't know if I, asking someone to be as good offensively as zach levine is is a big deal he but, also doesn't uh, reach the rim nearly ever for someone who's right. so athletic he just there's a stall to his game for some reason that, that's the piece the athleticism is not getting translated into like what it feels like it should and and again given his youth it's very possible that it, that could change so I, I like the upside but yeah I, heart heart feels more like the underrated pick um that leaves there's only one choice for this team for the kings a sacramento yeah. kings is there i mean so <laughs> i just picked harrison barnes i'm so soured on so many of the kings because i i don't know like i just thought De'Aaron fox was going to be a fringe all-star or he was a fringe all-star i to thought he'd make it at some point he's looked that part since before the Halliburton trade, like there's, it's been basically since the new year, he's looked really do good. it, do it for a year. Um, I, you got to prove it now. Cause I've gone to bat for him too many times. He's got to do it before. I ranked I, him I ahead of Chris Paul in the NBA 100 entering <laughs> last season. Oh boy. Well, I didn't go that far. Uh, I did. I think I did say I put him on a list of something I did where, uh, like, dark horses to to win a scoring title or something because he'd averaged like 25 and you know it still wasn't that efficient a couple of years ago and so i was like oh yeah he's he could get to 30 why not just get to the line a couple more times make one extra three we're there um i did not pick him i picked barnes just because i guess what i appreciate most about his game is uh the way that he's proved to be really effective in so many different ways and that's so weird for a guy that came into the league as like a fifth option that was so mechanical. Like the, the analogy I used to use for him was he was like a character you'd make on 2k that you like gave 99 everything. And then you handed the controller to someone who didn't know what the buttons were. So it was like his, <laughs> all of his drives would be totally mechanical and weird stops and starts. And it just, it like, it didn't work, but then he would do like, do you remember the dunk he had on Nikola Pekovic? Like as his first or second year, it was it's like an all-timer. And so athletically, he was just unlimited. He developed into a really good three-point shooter, but just it never was there. And then he goes to Dallas and he's like one of the best isolation scorers in the league for a year plus. And it's just that's the absolute last thing you would have ever expected from him based on the buttons thing. And then he just keeps getting better. This year he's it's a couple days old now, but He's got, he's a 63% true shooting, which is like 60% is the bar of like, this is an elite efficient, efficient scorer. Um, and he's, he's doing it on a bad team. Um, which in this case I'm using to say like, that's harder because he's not being set up, especially now that Tyrese Halliburton's gone. Um, so his degree of difficulty is kind of up there. Um, he just does whatever he's asked to do. He's great. We haven't, I haven't gone to this, you know, gone to the well on this one yet, but 
in terms of like a locker room guy, the adult in the room thing, like he's an A plus there. That matters. That that never gets factored into the underrated, overrated calculus. Um, fine on defense as long as you know you're not asking him to play small forward. He can't do that anymore. Um, but yeah, like he shoots 38 percent every year since 1415, other than when he from deep, uh, other than the Dallas years when he was like suddenly a number one option and his shot difficulty just went way up. So, um, I think, you know, Harrison Barnes is like, you cannot describe him without using the term solid and you're kind of getting dangerous if you say he's better than that. But, um, there's immense value to me in a guy that just like, is there every night on both ends and is zero maintenance and is able to play like, depending on the circumstances, just a ton of, in a ton of different ways, which, you know, I think speaks to like his lack of ego where he's just going to do what, what is asked of him. So, um, I'm curious who the only pick was going to be. I will say you did make a pretty compelling case. I thought about it a lot. I won't lie. (laughs) Uh, I, I'm not surprised that you picked a former warrior to be honest with you. But shouldn't be so. And I think it's by the way, I've gone from I ranked him as one of the worst contracts in the NBA, like middle in the middle of his last deal with Dallas, because it was just like they had him in this role where he was the the focus of their offense, didn't get to the free throw line, and his efficiency in isolation was like still above league average, but it wasn't a league average offensive output if that's your like Mm -hmm. most important source of it. And I'm now at the point, and this is for the Kings, I'm like, they need to extend this guy. After this season, he has one year and $18.4 million less. If he wants to stick around and he's willing to extend off that number, do it. Because I think he's crucial to making the Sabonis and uh, Fox pairing work. This is a fun team to do. And you have the Spurs. Oh, I have the Spurs. You have the Spurs. Yes. Uh, I almost tripped up there because I put a lot of thought into who I would pick for the Jazz. And I'm assuming you're going to pick the same player. But anyway. I I doubt it after this last one. (laughs) I think I'm going to go with Devin Vassell still. People still sort of view him as a specialist, and San Antonio has treated him like one with decreasing frequency. We saw it a little bit this year, the freedom he's given to dribble into his, his little pull-ups. And now since the uh, Derek White trade, they've given him more ball screens, and that's been fun to see. And then knowing what he's capable of doing on defense, there's value there if you want him to move off the ball as a cutter. As a cutter. I also think, I already mentioned him, but Trey Jones, has like a quaint little mid-range game, and he can throw some pretty creative pocket passes as well. Um, So he would be someone to watch. I am curious to see what Josh Primo turns into still. I think he's going to end up being really good. He's a rookie, though, so I tried to steer clear of that. If you wanted to say Zach Collins at this point or Keldon Johnson because he's done more on the ball, that's uh, that's totally fine. But it's to me, it's just Devin Vassell because I think there's more than – he's eventually or invariably going to be pigeonholed into this like three and D archetype. And he's just going to be so much more than that. I don't know if he's, I'm not saying he's the next Kawhi Leonard in San Antonio, but he is someone that I would keep an eye on. If there's a gap between the perception of what you think he's going to be and what he actually might become, this is someone that I could see having sort of a different games, but sort of a Mikhail Bridges type rise in perception where he might also just be heavier volume on offense because he's not playing alongside Chris Paul and Devin Booker. And it feels like he even has a little bit more confidence in himself on the ball. I feel like Mikhail is too unselfish at points still. I think Vassell is a great pick. I, 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 this wasn't my team, but just throughout the course of this year, Keldon Johnson has increasingly like just seemed, seemed like just one thing away from, because he's, so he's added a three point shot. He's 41% from deep this year. And he still is just like a bowling ball downhill, but 
like, hey, Keldon Johnson, get to the foul. Like, he gets to the foul line 2.9 times a game. I don't know how that's possible with the, the physicality that he brings driving. He shoots more often from three to 10 feet than, than inside three feet. So just like one more step and just run somebody over and you're good. And then suddenly he's averaging 20 a game instead of, what is it, 16 this year? Um, he'll, he'll get there, I think. Vassell, I do agree, though. Total, so portable. All, like right now, portable, like the kind of guy that you want with the bridges upside and then potentially more offensively. I think I, I have no, no, no issue with that pick. You, however, are going to have an issue with my Utah Jazz pick uh, because I really struggle with this. And I think I like so many players on the Jazz that I'm a bad gauge for this. Uh, but I picked Boyan Bogdanovich, and there's no chance that that's who you would have picked, right? No, but I, I get it because there's, and I don't want to steal what you're going to say, but I, when people were talking about, should they trade him? Is it, is his, their path to an upgrade? If you see a wing who's six, seven, six, eight, and just has better than 60 true shooting on the season, you're over like that. <laughs> we might be over like, that's just hyper valuable. Right. So I agree. And so start with the small sample since the all-star break, 48.2 from the field, 45.2 from three. He's plus 6.4, uh, which is the best on the Jazz since the break. Um, overall, though, like he's just he he just is the offensive efficiency is elite. Um, he's he's perfectly situated. I'll admit in an in an offense that like the the term Utah uses all the time is advantage basketball. Getting him the ball like on the move kind of mitigates the lack of you know start and stop speed that he has. It does it for everybody on the team, but I think he. And Joe Ingles, to, when he was on the roster uh, and healthy, benefit the most from that because it just puts guys that don't have, you know, blazing sprinter speed or quick, you know, quick twitch anything in positions to to where they're, you know, they're downhill. They're always a threat to stop and shoot. He's a decent passer. He's a shoot first guy for sure, which you should be if you're as accurate as him. He's pretty much always good for 39, 40% from deep. Um, the The downsides for him are obviously... I think he's going to eat forever on whatever that playoff series was years ago where he did a good job defending LeBron James, but he's, he's probably a minus defender. Um, but fine. If you're getting, you know, beat, you're still big and you have Gobert behind you. So he's in the right place to sort of hide what he doesn't do well. Um, I just think, I think he matters more than he gets credit for on a team that like, for sure, you know, Gobert, Mitchell Conley, that that's where the jazz, you know, our season, future or whatever is going to be decided. Um, but I, I just think the offensive efficiency does not get enough credit. Um, especially since like he kind of has to pick his spots because he's not close to the top option on this team. I I, I see that. I have Royce O'Neill because yeah. I just feel like he's become a forgotten man since we harp a lot on what Utah needs on the perimeter defensively and that he can't go it alone there. They just ask him to defend these wildly difficult assignments for 20 uh 30 plus minutes every single game oh and he's just quietly shooting above 40 percent from three i know he's not high volume on offense and there have been times where it feels like he can be overstretched if you put the ball in his hands you don't need to put the ball in his hands anymore like we're past that version of the utah jazz and this is this is wild but over the past three seasons he has cleared 2000 minutes and a matchup difficulty of 99 in each of the last three seasons <laughs> That is absurd. Like, it's also by default, though. Like somebody's got to do it on that team. But but I, I'm, I'm just I'm just nitpicking. But it's, this is also like it's in two thousand plus minutes every single season. It's it's by default. But he's also been available while holding yep. up against all of that. 
And hey, he's like, he's super complimentary on the offensive end. Uh, he would be, if they really, honestly, if they're trying to make an upgrade this offseason, I think the default move is going to be, can we attach Jordan Clarkson's money or Bogdanovich's money to how many future firsts? Like they can move a first, I think the soonest is 2026. Are they willing to go that route? If you really wanted to make an upgrade, I guarantee that you can probably get first round value for Royce O'Neal just because the breadth of what he covers on defense. Yeah, it's a problem that Utah's in quick enough, but they need someone who's bigger than Royce O'Neal because yeah, he's mostly gonna he'll go up against the number one or number two options, but like if you you can't put him on the the super big wings, he's just not big enough. That's not that's not on him, and he'll cover some of them. He is, I think, his most frequently guarded position or second most frequently guarded position is the three spot this year, if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to double check that, but just it's every game. Like it's it's not even oh who's gonna cover? It's no, it's just him. Royce O'Neal is basically on the best perimeter side. And if you, if you can't put him on that person, you're fucked. That's the other right. thing. They just have no safety net. So I just feel like he deserves, even if it's by default, this workload, he is held up for it over each of the past three seasons. And I feel like no, it's, yeah. it's time that he receives his kudos for it. I agree. I was being facetious. Like, I think the fact that like his job sucks, like he, because <laughs> he, he has to guard. It doesn't, it all, it doesn't matter. It's like, man, I'm giving up four inches and 40 pounds to this guy, or I'm chasing around someone that Conley's not quick enough. Like, you know, he, he, the fact that he is sort of overmatched sometimes, but it doesn't matter. Like three, you said it three years and he just guards the best guy. Like that's just how it has to be. And to put up with that and to sort of, in terms of the shots he gets, it's just scraps generally, or he's getting left because Utah always has a bunch of other bigger threats. Um, I think, I think the thanklessness of, of his of his job really put puts him in line with like a bunch of the guys I've already picked. So I definitely can't go against that since I've cited defensive matchup difficulty and uh, guys who are good at defense several times. I'd have to go back and remember who you picked, but maybe these guys are just standing out to me. You were like really in on the slow people in this one. Mm. Madonovich, Steven Adams, Jonas Valanciunas. Do you just, you hate speed? Do you hate? Yes. Slows, slows the new fast. That's, that's the thing. Everybody, you know, it's all about controlling the pace. It doesn't matter what the pace is. Ask Luca. Please send Grant all your viral three toad sloth videos. We'd (laughs) love to watch those for hours at a time. Grant, this was a lot of fun. And I think a very informative exercise. Um, Are you able to just tell our listeners where they can find your work and um, where they can find you on social media once every six months? Yeah, check me out at Bleacher Report. Um, hopefully, right alongside Dan, uh, but not next to him, so that I don't look bad for uh, for what I put out compared to him. And uh, GT underscore Hughes on Twitter. Uh, I tweet once in a while, and uh, I don't waste my tweets. I'm an efficient tweeter, so uh, I think you can attest to that because you still get alerts when I tweet. Like every, uh, I like know. when I get the grant. Like, and I don't know why Twitter sends it to me about you. Maybe because you're like one of the. Lo- I followed you for one of the longest times on Twitter. I don't. I don't get it for anybody else, but it's Grant. Maybe it's because I've tagged you. I don't know like how it goes into it. I will get every time you have an original tweet. Grant Hughes tweeted for the first time in a while, and I'm like, oh and then, shit. And then and then you're like, why is he talking about Manu Ginobili? He's retired for like five years. Who cares? Like it's fucking Tuesday in March 2022. What does Manu Ginobili have to do with anything that's happening right now? <laughs> Everything. Uh, this was great, and I will be pestering you soon, as you know by now. Thanks, Dan.